Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Markus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we talk to Hod Lipson and Josh Bongard about a highly adaptive robot they built together with Viktor Saikov in a project at Cornell University. Josh Bongard is now an assistant professor at the University of Vermont. He's very well known for his work in artificial evolution and artificial ontogeny. His research interests center around automatic robot design with little or no human intervention and the automatic creation of models for physical systems. He has also just published a book on embodiment together with Rolf Pfeiffer. Our second guest, Todd Lipson, is an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering and computing and information science, and the director of the computational synthesis lab at Cornell University. He's very well known for his work on evolutionary robotics, which made front page news worldwide in 2000, and his lab's work on machine self-replication and self-modeling, which made headlines again in 2005 and 2006. Hud Lipson has broad interests in publications across robotics, AI, design automation, and freeform fabrication. His research focuses primarily on biologically inspired approaches, as they bring new ideas to engineering and new engineering insights into biology. So, hi Hud, hi Josh, welcome to Talking Robots. Hello there. Hello. So, the two of you, uh, in collaboration with uh, third person Victor Saikov, have just published a paper in the very renowned magazine Science describing a robot that is resilient to damage. Can you tell us in a nutshell what this paper is all about? Well, uh, in principle, we've uh, basically shown a robot that is able to create a model, uh, a virtual model of itself, by observing uh, its own movement in response to various actuations. So it uh, moves and senses and gradually builds up an internal simulation of itself and then uses that simulation to uh, plan motion. So. We've shown how uh, a robot can use that model to uh, generate a pattern of locomotion, and we've shown how that uh, it can do it again after its morphology has changed, after, after it has been damaged. Um, so, so the main point is the ability of the machine to generate a model of itself and then use it to generate new behaviors. So you said if the robot is damaged, so that would mean if the robot... If I don't know if a leg breaks off or something, then the robot can adapt to this and develop a new gait. Exactly. So imagine, uh, so imagine a robot that needs to behave uh, in an environment, and it doesn't know exactly what it itself looks like. It doesn't know how uh, motors are connected. It doesn't know what its own form is. Uh, so that could be in its initial state, like a, a newborn baby that doesn't know exactly what its body looks like, or it can be a robot after some damage has occurred. For example, a leg fell, fell off, a motor has been jammed, or, or, or something else has happened to the, to the shape of the robot or the morphology. So this is an example of a case where a robot doesn't know exactly what it looks like, and yet it needs to sustain its operation. This paper of yours, it has sparked an enormous interest in the news. Uh, science itself, so the Science Journal itself, featured your article under the, under the title New Robot Shrugs Off Injury, and Science New talked about an unstoppable blot armed with, with a self-scrutiny, a mangled robot moves on, and writers says, "Robot, heal thyself. Welcome to the future." Uh, what makes this technology so interesting? 
I think uh, part of the reason why this technology is so interesting is not just the fact that this robot can recover from damage that's been done before in previous projects, but more importantly is how it goes about doing that. So as Hod mentioned, this robot has the ability to build an internal simulation of itself. And in doing that, it builds up or infers the fact that, for example, one part of its body is missing. And I think this is sort of the first step towards starting to address the question of self-awareness. How would a machine, or even more interestingly, how might a human or an animal build up an understanding of its own body? So I think that's part of the reason for the, the wide interest in our work. And how does this actually work? So, so the details of that, as Hod says, is that the robot is performing a series of actions. So just to paint a mental picture, this robot looks something like a starfish. It's lying flat on the table, and it has four legs that are splayed out. And what the robot does is to actuate. It rotates some of the joints, and that causes the robot to move, and it can sense that movement. And the robot doesn't have a camera, so it can't directly see its own body or sense directly the fact that a piece is missing. But based on these motions, it can, de it can determine internally that, for example, this body configuration is the only body configuration that explains those movements. And that's basically the idea of how it goes about building up a description of its own body. So you, you can demonstrate how, how this robot can self-generate movement for an undamaged or even a damaged robot uh, built on this internal model it has. But with the eight, so you said it's a starfish shape, with these eight joints on your robot, the space of possible motions is just huge, it's enormous. What motion primitives do you use to make this work? So, so the, the, it, it essentially uh, searches for uh, two types of actions. One, one type of action is an action that's geared towards inferring its own morphology. So that would be a simple motion of uh, a few of its limbs. Uh, second type of action that it uh, looks for are actions that actually make it able to achieve a particular goal, such as moving forward. And these are very distinct type of actions. One is an action that's geared towards inference, and the other one is an action that's geared towards achieving a goal. And so in, uh, in, in both cases, you use a different, uh, uh, say, uh, action building blocks to make these uh, uh, complex actions made out of simple combinations of, of motor commands. But I think it's, it's also important uh, to, to first realize that most robots today have, uh, have, they have two components. They have a controller that makes a robot do something, and they have a, uh, an internal mathematical model, if you like, or a simulation that predicts what certain actions will do to the robot. Very often this, uh, uh, this mo internal model is, is provided by an engineer, it's designed into the system. So what we've done here is not only automatically generate a controller for a robot, which has been done before also, but we've automatically generated the model. That's usually less talked about, the fact that the model is, is uh, provided externally. And this combination of automatically generating a model and automatically generating a controller together, I think, uh, is very powerful. So if you were to place this robot on a slippery surface, say, or uh, into a narrow corridor, uh, could it use this same process to adapt its movement? We're hoping so. So we did some initial experiments w with a simulated robot rather than a real robot. 
where we allowed that robot to infer not only changes in its own body, such as a body part coming off, but also changes in the environment. So what we did in that initial experiment was instead of damaging the virtual robot, we tilted the floor underneath the robot, and the robot was able to eventually successfully infer that, no, it hadn't been damaged. What actually had happened would had been that there'd been a change uh, in the floor. So at least in theory, we demonstrated that a machine might be able to disambiguate between changes to its own body and changes to an external environment. Uh, so your current model, if I understand correctly, only models the limbs and the joints. So what That's happens correct. if... It's, it's something like a, a Lego system, if you like. So the robot is trying to figure out how its pieces are put together. Yeah, but what happens now if, say, a chip breaks... So that right. depends on what kind of uh, building blocks, these virtual Lego, virtual building blocks that you allow the system to play around with in order to explain its own structure. So um, it can have various combinations of pieces, and it will use that to try to explain uh, what's happening. But we've also seen in, in this uh, simulation that Josh just uh, mentioned that even if it cannot explicitly describe what's gone wrong, it might be able to describe it in some other way using some other kind of failure that it can describe uh, and in that way uh, compensate. So, for example, let's say uh, uh, one of the sensors is, is malfunctioning, causing, uh, um, uh, causing one of the, uh, or let, let's say one of the, let's say one of the uh, wheels is slipping. And it doesn't can't quite actually describe slippage, but instead it can describe uh, a motor not working, which is a different kind of problem. But uh, solving the latter problem also takes care of the first problem. So in that way, it's able to represent problems or issues that it can't uh, explicitly uh, 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 model. So th this was an important point for us because this is one of the, the points of contention in robotics is that you can never build a perfect model for a robot beforehand because its environment is always changing. And as Hod says, there's always unanticipated situations such as a wheel slipping. So the nice thing here was the demonstration that this machine could approximate that change using other building blocks, using other uh, language. So if I understand this correctly, this means that it, its robustness, the ro robot's robustness against error or whatever thing might happen, extends beyond this internal, beyond this internal model it has. Now, it might still be interesting to have a, a more complex model, put more Lego building blocks in there, not just the joints and the limbs. Uh, how would this scale? Could I put this on a, on a current robot onboard processing? Is this feasible? Well, so there's a couple of interesting questions about scalability um, uh, one of so in order to make this more versatile you would of course uh, want to give it finer and finer building blocks and eventually allow it to have something maybe as open-ended as a neural network where it actually doesn't uh, even uh, have uh, uh, equations of motion it really has to figure out everything including the physics from scratch and by doing so it has the most open-ended way of describing itself and the environment. And that's something that we're definitely interested in doing. Of course, it might be a harder problem uh, because there's just uh, less prior knowledge, so it needs to learn a lot more. Uh, on the other hand, it might be able to model things uh, in a way that's different than we like to model them as engineers. So it would be very interesting to see what kind of uh, models it would generate. And, of course, uh, it's not clear whether it's going to be uh, to what degree 
level of complexity will this uh, will this work? Like you say, the question of scalability is is, uh, is still up in the air, and 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 we'll have to see about that. So, where do you see uh, where do you see the main applications of this new technology? One of the the initial applications that we had in mind was using this algorithm eventually for the next generation of robot probes that we want to send out into the solar system. So we can imagine the next generation of planetary rovers where we have a rover operating on the surface of a distant planet and it may take a long time to communicate back with mission control and something unanticipated happens. So a leg breaks off or the robot experiences something and it needs to figure out for itself, first of all, what is this unanticipated situation? What's happened? And once it's determined that, for example, that a leg is missing, it needs to figure out on its own how to compensate for that damage. So that was the initial idea out of which this work uh, grew, so that would be one uh, application. The other one would be to use these robots uh, in a disaster zone, for example, searching for human survivors. In a disaster site, again, you have a very dangerous situation where there's a high probability that the robot may become damaged, and it's also encountering unanticipated situations. The, the environment is very complex. There are also a number of applications that are a little bit more mundane, but nonetheless important and, and possibly more uh, uh, cl uh, closer. Uh, for example, uh, we've recently uh, published a paper together with Wilkins Aquino at Cornell about using exactly the same process for a bridge to infer uh, damage in itself. So imagine you have a bridge that has uh, hundreds of pieces in it, hundreds of truss components, one of them is a little bit damaged, is, is maybe 10% weaker than it should be, and if the bridge can vi vibrate itself at various locations uh, intelligently and gradually infer a model of itself, it can identify uh, which pieces are weaker than they, than they should be and, and give some warning. So that's something that, that we've uh, shown in simulation and appears to outperform uh, conventional civil engineering methods for analyzing structures. So that's a, it's not a, a, a robotic application per se, but it's the same principle applied to other systems. And I think there are many applications of that sort as well. And where would you see the, the next steps, the next biggest challenges for this technology? I think there's various directions that we g can go for the future of this research. One particular area uh, that I'm interested in is trying to apply this algorithm not to a single robot, to a, but to a group of robots. So we can imagine if we have a group of robots working together on a common task, such as construction, uh, these robots are experiencing the same situations. And as they're building models of themselves in their local environments, we would w like those robots to share their experiences. So they could literally beam their internal models to their neighbors. And the effect of that would be, hopefully, if it's successful, that one, one robot, if it encounters an unanticipated situation and recovers from it and then beams that experience to its neighbors, a second robot that encounters the same or similar situation will be able to recover more quickly because it can draw on the prior experience of the other robots. So we could get them to become resilient as a group of robots rather than having a single uh, resilient robot. And they could also discover new strategies for movement, for instance, faster if they're in a group. Exactly. So you basically have a distributed system which is accumulating experiences and accumulating strategies. So before we move to the second part where we'll talk a bit more about robotics in general, 
Uh, let's briefly talk about some more philosophical issues of, of this technology. Uh, currently, most robots only adapt to the environment. And now your robot is different in that it also adapts to itself, its own morphology. It constantly tries to, to model and understand itself. And it has a cap capability to discover when it's damaged. Does this make the robot self-conscious? Well, that, that's a that's a very interesting question, and and firstly, the whole issue of, of consciousness is is widely debated. So it's not clear uh, people don't agree what the definition of the word is. Uh, but clearly, uh, consciousness involves in some way the ability to model oneself, uh, and uh, self consciousness is is perhaps more complicated than that. And in the sense that the robot is able to create a model of itself is, is at least uh, a key component towards achieving that. And I think there are many levels of consciousness. And in some, some primitive way, the fact that the robot can model itself uh, is, uh, is in, in, an important, uh, is at least a step in that, uh, in that direction. So it's able to create a model of itself and use that model to make uh, predictions. Um, and that's, I think, a key component of, of consciousness. Another thing to point out here is, is aside from the question of self-consciousness, it also gives us a tool to investigate the question of curiosity. So as we were mentioning earlier, this robot is exploring its own body, and the way that it's exploring its own body is not random. So this robot initially performs a random action and builds not only a single model of itself, but actually a set of competing models. And the robot is then trying new actions. It never performs the same action twice to learn something new about its body. And the way that it's doing that is searching for a new action or a new behavior that will cause those internal models to disagree. So if you watch this robot in action, it looks like it's being playful. It's always trying new things. Um, so maybe this says something about the nature of curiosity in, in humans and animals. When you look at a baby, a newborn baby, for example, uh, uh, motion, it might at first appear to be uh, random, but perhaps it's not random. Perhaps it's some subconscious process trying to model uh, the dynamics. So uh, there, uh, there are, there's evidence that, the, that, that animals, higher animals, have some kind of, of forward model uh, in them. It's not clear how, to what degree that model uh, is accurate and how it's represented and how it uh, is formed, whether it's innate or whether it's acquired. But uh, this, this, uh, the, the computational uh, process that we've been uh, trying out might shed some light on this, these biological questions as well. It seems more and more research in robotics seems to focus on how to get the human out of the loop. We just talked about how a robot can learn how to deal with a broken leg or a new environment without humans, uh, and or even to automate the initial design of its its control system. Do you think this is a this is a trend that will continue? Absolutely. I think that's one of the, the fundamental goals of robotics is to try and develop intelligent machines that can complement human work. So we, in order to do that, in order to be the most useful tool they can be, we need robots to have some level of autonomy. And I don't think that implies that these robots are going to somehow get out of our control, but we want them to be able to perform work and help us without having to constantly ask us for supervision. And I think that's one of the, the true goals of robotics. And our work is simply one instance of showing how you can remove uh, the human to some degree from that loop.
I think there's also, if you look at uh, the, the the trajectory that robotics has, has been taking over the, the last uh, uh, decades, perhaps, uh, there is a transition from uh, very uh, industrial-like robots that can work in very specific uh, uh, structured environments where everything is in the right place, such as in a factory or uh, on an assembly line or where where things are, are well-defined into more unstructured environments, such as a robot that can walk outside nature or operate in people's homes, which is a very unstructured environment. Uh, and in order to make that transition, it's very difficult, it's very natural for people to be in those environments, but it's very difficult for a robot because it has to be more aware of its environment and be able to uh, reason about it. So, so uh, autonomous uh, behavior, autonomous adaptation to changing an unstructured environment is a big challenge that lies ahead, and uh, I think there's a strong push to develop algorithms for those kinds of environments. Let's talk a bit more about the future in, in robotics in general. Which fields in robotics do you see as as the most promising technologically in, in the future? Well, that's, that's a it's a difficult question to answer because robotics is is almost by definition a mixture of lots of different fields. There, there are uh, people that work on let's say machine vision and, and see that as as a key component. Uh, there are unresolved questions in power, for example, power storage and batteries seem to be very critical to making progress in robotics. Uh, there is, uh, some would argue that the reason that robots are uh, appear to be making progress is nothing but the ability to have higher processing uh, capabilities on board. Uh, so there are lots of different components that, that play into this, all the way from better AI algorithms to better technologies and better uh, power supply, better understanding uh, of uh, of cognition and so forth, and I think that all of these together are going to to play and uh, uh, a role together. I think another challenge for robotics becoming a mainstream technology is aside from the technical technical issues that Hod mentioned are economic and social issues. So one very successful commercial robot. Uh, product at the moment is uh, iRobot's robotic vacuum cleaner, and part of the success there was the way in which that company posed their particular problem. So they have a robot that can clean floors in a home. And as Hod mentioned, a home environment, an outdoor environment, is much more complicated than a factory, but the floor of a home is still a relatively structured environment. So a robot can do something relatively simple and efficiently, uh, in the home. So I think one of the challenges is how we pose problems for robots to solve out in the real world. So one example of that is trying to define certain constrained niches where we can deploy robots and allow people to get used to seeing robots on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think then we'll start to see uh, an increasing number of home robots and outdoor robots complementing human work. You just mentioned vacuum cleaner robots. Uh, where do you think 20 years from now Will robotics have had the biggest impact in our lives? Uh, there's uh, that's a, a very speculative question. I think there's, uh, in my opinion at least, there uh, it will be a, a kind of gradual transition that will. Uh, it won't be a, a robot that walks in the door one day. Uh, it's going to be a gradual transition from vacuum cleaning to uh, increasingly more sophisticated tasks. Um, 
I would take my, my bet on uh, probably uh, two kinds of robots. One is uh, are, are robots that uh, take care of people in some way. I think there's a growing uh, need for this, uh, and especially in, in uh, Japan has been putting a lot of emphasis on these kind of symbiotic robots that can take care of people, uh, and that can involve various levels of automation. Uh, and uh, the second kind of application, which is not unrelated, I think, is entertainment uh, uh, robotics. I think the, that there are lots of uh, ways that robots can entertain, for example, in gaming and things like that. I think there, that would be certainly one uh, area. I would agree with Hod in that, and I think also we will tend to see robots performing relatively simple tasks in outdoor environments. For example, we could imagine having uh, robots on a construction site that are doing nothing more intelligent than moving material from one place to another. And I think that's one way for robots to gain a foothold out in the real world and, and complement uh, human activity. Thank you very much, Josh and Hod, for... Uh this interesting episode of uh, Talking Robots. Thanks very much. Thank you. This concludes our Talking Robots interview with Hot Lipson and Josh Bongart on work they did together with Victor Sykov at Cornell University. For links to pictures and videos of their damage-resilient robot and the functioning of its internal model, visit our website, where you can also find information on past and upcoming podcasts, as well as leave comments on our show. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.